Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the study of antiquity and the Middle Ages. As always, I am your host, Nick Barksdale, and today we are joined by a very special guest, and that is Dr. Jerome Windendale. Today, I'm bringing you a very interesting subject. As you all know, I love to cover debated topics dealing with history. This one deals with another one that many of you are going to love, and that are the two terms, Byzantine or Eastern Roman. And so, without further ado, Doctor, thank you so much for coming on my channel. My pleasure. And before we get started, for my subscribers who may not be familiar with your work, they're obviously going to want to know more. They're going to want to support you by checking out your writing, so on and so forth. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself? I usually say I work on the volatile cocktail formerly known as the fall of Rome. Um, basically, uh, my research uh, zooms in on the use of political violence uh, in the later Roman Empire, which goes anywhere from, let's say, the third century until the seventh century, uh, and that is CE. Now, um, it all basically started with doing this this uh, a biography, and this is like way back when I was an MA student, of a single general called Boniface in the fifth century. And uh, man, a guy who corresponded with St. Augustine, for instance. And towards the end, I realized, you know, this guy is a bit like uh, what we would call in political sciences, a warlord, the phenomenon you see in Afghanistan, uh, Congo, Somalia. So, so military, like military men, maybe former generals or commanders who separate themselves from, from, from central authority, usually in a period when central authority is already really weak. And, and sometimes they grab control over like peripheral provinces or they go rogue with their armies. And then I started applying that phenomenon to basically the end of the Roman army in the West. Um, but I mean, that's just my research. I've been teaching also things like criminal history here at Ghent University. Uh, I've been a bit around. I mean, I call myself on Twitter a scholar of fortune because uh, I did my PhD in Ireland. I taught in Australia, did some research in Italy, but now I'm back here in my on my native turf. So I've been teaching Byzantine history, there you have it, and uh, criminal history now for about five years or so. To set the premise for this episode, I want to ask, is there a Byzantium in history? Does it actually exist? I'll just like give you the basic uh, background. I think we should distinguish between two things. Well, first of all, there was a historical Byzantium. That's beyond dispute. The problem is most of the time people think about one thing without thinking about the first thing. And the first thing, there was an ancient Greek colony, yep. uh, a city-state called Byzantium, founded in the 7th century BC by Megara, a, a, a city close to Athens. So there was a historical Byzantium, absolutely. And that city stuck with that name for, well, a good millennium or so. So that's pretty fair, right? Yeah. Then, of course, um, you get this, this empire, which is really the Roman Empire, that continues uh, for another thousand years, up until the 15th century, uh, and it's sometimes called the Byzantine Empire. Why? Well, the city of Byzantium, which is now modern Istanbul in Turkey, at some point, the Roman Emperor Constantine is going to do like a, a total makeover. He's like, I like this city. I feel like we could use like a new imperial residence. It might actually be handy to point out it was not meant, as a lot of people sometimes think, to be the new capital of the Roman Empire. It was not. Like in the fourth century, the emperor is a bit of a 
um, of a what I call a traveling uh, supreme commander. He rarely stays in one city for uh, most of his reign. He might be like in 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 Syria, let's say in the city of Antioch. He may be in Milan in northern Italy, in Trier, close to the, the River Rhine, or like with the city of Byzantium. Constantine decides, you know what? I'm gonna expand this, and and I'm gonna create it, recreate a bit of image, and that's why very soon he died about seven years after the the refoundation was complete, and people started referring to it as his city, the city of Constantinople. So, as you may know, the western half at some point in the fifth century completely disintegrates, but at least in the east continues to 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 live on. Now, the interesting thing is like. People back then, they never called it the Byzantine Empire. It's much later, let's say in the early modern period, and in Western Europe, when when scholars are like, you know, um, I think we need a new name to just to make it easier for everyone. I mean, if you say Roman, I mean, that could go anywhere, right? From from like the, the, the archaic age and the first millennium BC, or all the way to, God knows, the 15th century CE. So I'm going to call it some people decide, you know, let's call it Byzantine. The problem is, as I'm happy to, to to continue on, that term is loaded and comes with all kinds of connotations. Based on your research, your experience, and even your imagination, when you hear the term Byzantine or Eastern Roman, what comes to your mind? Is it two completely different pictures or is it something similar? If I'm really honest, the term Byzantine or Byzantine, where whichever you prefer. It's fascinating, right? Even in my own native Dutch, I'll try to pronounce it in Dutch, just like Byzantines. Because it's Greek, it uses a combination of vowels and a combination of sounds you rarely hear. So there's something like exotic and fascinating about it. So, I mean, when I was a kid, like uh, getting interested into history, at some point you're like, oh, there's the Romans. And then there's medieval history. And then there seems to be this weird blend that people call Byzantine. I mean, it is a nice way to get people in. I have no problem with that. The problem I find based on my research and my years of teaching is like, it's 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 simply inaccurate. To start with the basic premise, it's like nobody in what we call the Byzantine Empire, whether it's the 5th century or the 15th, 15th century, ever called themselves a Byzantine. They didn't. They always called themselves Roman, or as they did in Greek, Romaioi. There is an exception. Uh, I mean, sometimes when I read my, my my sources, even Eastern authors will use the term Byzantium and Byzantines, but only for one specific context, and that's the city of Constantinople. So you have to imagine these are like highbrow intellectuals, okay? They like showing off. They like showing off. They like to show you that they studied, that they know that they are they have their pedigree. So it's like. You know, it's 2021 and people start calling, how are things in New Amsterdam? Just so you know, once upon a time, there was a New Amsterdam. Um, but it's tricky uh, and they don't do it often. Like one of my favorite authors, which I usually look at with my students when I teach this course, is, is a woman, which is already very rare. First, if you can you call her European, a historian whose writings have been uh, preserved, Anna Komnena. Now, she was the daughter of the, the Emperor Alexius I during the time of the First Crusade. So she gives like you a non-Western perspective. And I usually, uh, with my students, we read together uh, the chapters when the, the, the leaders of the Crusade arrive. And all the time, she'll be talking about the Romans. But 
once, like during this these specific chapters, she talks about the Byzantines, and she just only means the citizens of Constantinople. And that's it. Okay, it's all fine for one city. But let's say, I mean, the Eastern Empire or the Roman Empire, uh, even in the Middle Ages, it, it, it stretched far and beyond, right? You, you could have like outposts in Crimea, which is now occupied by Russia. You could have uh, a toehold in Italy in the south, like in what is now Puglia in Cyprus. Nobody living there would have called themselves a Byzantine. They would, probably would have called themselves a Roman. And now let's talk historiography. What is Roman? Well, that's a tricky one. The easiest answer, of course, it, it refers to the city of Rome. And of course, people in the archaic period, uh, which is tricky, of course, because most of our written sources for, for Rome and the Roman Republic are, are way after. I mean, for the archaic period, you mainly have to rely on things like archaeology and all that. But I mean, there was the city of Rome, no dispute. Of course, the meaning of Roman expands as, as, as Rome also expands territorially. Uh, the moment they start like uh, conquering most of the Italian peninsula, at some point, one of their key uh, reasons to success was like distributing citizenship. Now, they didn't do it uh, liberally, just to be clear. But now every now and then for, for preferred allies, and this could take centuries, they might give them citizenship. And at some point, the ultimate goal, of course, is Roman citizenship, because then you get to have your stake in, 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 in elections and all that. So at some point, it no longer just refers to, to the city, but also like your, your stake in politics, like you become a citizen. Then, of course, you have the empire and the politics don't really matter as much anymore because you have an emperor and his staff who are really in control. Yet even then, uh, the empire at some point reaches its maximum extent. But that doesn't mean that every province has Roman citizenship. But by the time you get to the early third century, one emperor, Caracalla, decides, snap, snap with my fingers, all freeborn male inhabitants of the empire, you all have citizenship now. You're Romans. And that's when it gets interesting, because at that point, you may have pe people like hailing from, from, from Britain, that used to be a Celtic region, uh, let's say um, Dacia which is now uh, in modern Romania, or let's say uh, Nabatea, like which is uh, around modern Jordan, suddenly everybody is a Roman. The, this is where we get back to our um, Byzantine or Eastern Roman angle. Uh, this also means the people in the East, Greek-speaking people. Now here, this is what I find absolutely fascinating, right? The ancient Greeks had no sense of false modesty. They were very proud of their achievements, whether it's like the theater, philosophy, uh, historiography, you name it. And that's where we have like our, our, our mirror, our counter mirror example of the barbarian. Ancient Greeks use it, Roman use it, Romans use it. It's everyone who's an ancient Greek person or a Roman person, no matter whether you're, whether you're like a, uh, an imperial superpower like Persia or a, uh, or a nomad tribe like the Huns north of the Black Sea, or just an agricultural community like the Franks near the Rhine, all barbarians. Doesn't matter how you're living, you're not Greek or you're not Roman. Yet even these ancient Greeks at some point will start referring to themselves as Roman, Romaioi. So even after the fall of the empire in the West, uh, because there is only, and this is also maybe something I should point out, for, uh, there was never a separation between a Western Roman Empire and an Eastern Roman Empire. 
you only have one single empire constitutionally. However, just because of sheer practicalities of governance, you may have several, you may have multiple emperors with each their court. I would call this anachronistically the federalization of the Roman Empire, because constitutionally, still a single empire, but you have different spheres with each their administration, which means even when Italy is no longer under control by a, an, by a single emperor, but you still have a single emperor in Constantinople, they're the Roman Empire as far as they're concerned. The so-called so called barbarian peoples in the West, no matter whether they're Burgundians or, or Vandals or, or Goths, they also regard as the Roman Empire. So no biggie. We can use the term Eastern Roman Empire or Eastern Romans to be more clear, because the moment you have two imperial courts, they are aware of their distinction. For instance, you have this fascinating document, which is, which is called the Notitia Dignitatum, which is like an, a registry of all the imperial offices, all the army units scattered around, uh, whether it's like Gaul or Syria, doesn't matter, roughly around the year 400. And the index clearly refers to like the offices pertaining to the Western sphere and the Eastern sphere. Uh, an Eastern author, like we have this amazing guy called Priscus who visited the court of Attila. He's an eyewitness um, to that. He will refer in his writings to Western Romans. At least those terms are contemporary. At least people use them. But of course, why would you refer to, to yourself Western or Eastern if you're your own viewpoint? I mean, to give a basic example, um, when I was living and working in Australia, people sometimes said, well, you're so European. And I'm like, well, that is technically correct, but I've never referred to myself as European. People, labels people use uh, for other people. And that's why nobody, of course, in let's say 10th century uh, at, is going to call them Eastern Roman because they're Romans. And so when we look at the history of the term Byzantine and what it's going to involve, you know, evolve into, when do we first see it appear when it comes to historiography? That's a tricky one. Um, I should point out, though, um, even the Romans in the East sometimes will use different names for themselves. After the Fourth Crusade, which was a massive, massive trauma for the people in the empire, uh, the city gets taken by crusaders, brutally sacked, and you have like cut off breakaway political entities. You might want to call them empires, uh, like in Nicaea, for instance. And from that on, the, the 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 word Greek Hellenos will get a positive meaning again, just as a way of distinction. They still don't use Byzantines. That's what people in the Western Europe um, scholars basically will start using from the early modern period on. I think it already happens as early as the early 16th century in the Holy Roman Empire, uh, roughly modern Germany today, even though there were a few other territories. As a field of study, it starts kicking in around the 17th, 18th century. I know, for instance, in Germany, there was this man called Kromayer, if I'm not mistaken, who really was like one of the founders of Byzantine studies, Byzantinistic uh, in Germany. Yet nobody, not everybody was doing that. I mean, to give you a famous example, Edward Gibbon, who wrote one of the best-selling, probably the best-selling uh, piece of modern historiography of all time, uh, the, the, the History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, he still calls it the Roman Empire. This is a fascinating thing. A lot of people, when you buy, let's say, an abridgment, you don't realize the man takes his history all the way from the Antonines in the 2nd century to the Renaissance, 
he keeps going all the way to the fall of Constantinople and beyond in 1453. So at least he was consciously still regarding it as a Roman Empire, even though he had a low opinion uh, of it. And that's, of course, where we get to the crux, right? You have to only open a modern dictionary. Doesn't matter whether it's an English one, a French one, a Dutch one, a German one. Among the different meanings of Byzantine, the adjective Byzantine, you will always have the negative connotations like uh, needlessly complex. If you want to call a bureaucracy complex, I mean, that's almost like uh, I'm not going to make any jokes. Call it Byzantine. Uh, sycophantic behavior. It's like this Orientalist view, like, oh, they're like Easterners, they're Greeks, uh, almost kind of degenerates. And of course, like superstitious and all that, uh, heavily involved in theological debates, schisms, heresies, you name it. One of the key criteria why Gibbon had such a disdain or such a lowly opinion of, of, of the Roman Empire in the East. And that makes it tricky, of course, because you I, I, you can't blame you can't blame the general audience. I mean, the term has been used for so long, but if you're a scholar and if you've studied this period, if you look at sources, and you know these people never call themselves that. Interestingly enough, their neighbors, let's say the Seljuk Turks, when they start conquering pieces of Asia Minor in the 11th century, uh, if I'm not mistaken, at some point they will start referring to the area in core in the in the, the center of Anatolia as Rum. It's the country of the Romans. So the contemporary neighbors were also aware that these are Romans. I mean, I, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm probably a lonely voice in this, because I know there's so many people who use the term Byzantine, even my own colleagues. There are, there are not very few, but there are a few institutes for Byzantine studies in Russia, in, in Bulgaria, in, in, in Austria. And of course, it helps to create um, a feel for your own. It helps to distinguish yourself. Okay, you're a Roman historian. There's already distinguish. Uh, there's already distinctions between Republican Roman historians, Imperial Roman historians, even late Roman historians. What do we need then? The later, later, latest Roman historians. I can understand. It's a bit tricky. But I mean, I, I have huge problems with it. I mean, if I'm really a bit polemical, I would almost call it identity theft. We do not. We do not refer to the Native Americans anymore Indians. I'm pretty sure we've all given up on that. I hope we've all given up on that. They don't use those terms. Why would we use that term then for people who never use it themselves? In some sources, we see a term pop up when describing the Eastern Empire, and that is the Empire of the Greeks. What are the ramifications behind that phrase? Well, the depends, right? If you're a Western envoy and uh, you have uh, a meeting with the emperor and you want to have the, your fastest ticket to be thrown into the jail, call him the emperor of the Greeks. Uh, it's a problematic term for what people, for the, the, the emperor, who would have regarded themselves as the emperor of the Romans. Because it's like it has like also religious connotations. Uh, to give you an example, there's this amazing 4th century Roman historiographer called Ammianus Marcellinus. Very rare historiographer, because at least this is a man whose history has been preserved for at least the second half and with military experience. Somebody who had at some point been part of an imperial hit squad, uh, who was stuck in a siege, surrounded by the Persians. And at the end of his work, he refer refers himself as a quandam miles, like a former soldier and a Graecus. But Ammianus doesn't mean for with that that he's a Greek. He means he's like somebody following the traditional religion. Uh, what, you, what people would call pagans or polytheists, but not a Christian. 
So that connotation is preserved, whether you're using the Latin Graecus or the Greek Hellenos. It refers to non-Christians. Now, when West and East start drifting apart, this label will be used by, by people uh, in the West, for instance. There's a famous encounter in a, in a piece of hagiography around the year 500. Let's, let's cut it up to around year 500, where you have a general of, of so-called barbarian origin in a dispute with a Western emperor who originally came from Constantinople. So at some point, he, he, the, the author says the, the general referred to him as like a Grykulus, like, like the tiny Greek, like the Greekling. Of course, things get more complicated, especially from the time of Charlemagne on, when you have somebody in the West crowned by the Pope referring to himself now as a new emperor, an emperor of the Romans. That's why we have our expression, the Holy Roman Empire, because they regard themselves as the new Roman Empire. But hang on, I don't think the people in the in Constantinople are going to love hearing that. So that's why, at least in the West, every now and then, Greek Greeklings, um, it's used to to like as a bit like a pinpoint. It's like, yeah, I mean, they're not real Romans, and that's of course the problem, right? When you use a term like Byzantine, somehow you still there is this lingering idea, almost this implicit suggestions. They're not real Romans. I even noticed this with my some of my colleagues when they write books on the late Roman Empire. At least they will cut off around the 7th century. They say by the 7th century, it changes so dramatically because of the Persian Wars, because of the Arab conquests. The empire shrinks to a core area around Asia Minor, the capital of Constantinople, and a few bits and pieces in Italy and Greece, and that's about it. And it's like the, the, the Greek becomes the official language, while Latin was the, the official language before. At that point, they will feel safe, like we, we're no longer going to call it a Roman Empire. We're going to call it a Byzantine Empire, just for shorthand, just, for, for, just to make things easier. Even they find it difficult to still call it Roman. And I can understand that. I mean, at least you're... you're, you're geopolitical empire with parts in Europe, Africa, uh, the Near East, that's uh, not really that anymore. It's smaller. It's, 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 it does get a different outlook. But I mean, if we're really fair, think about Rome itself. I mean, it starts as this one city-state among hundreds of others in, 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 in the Italian peninsula. Even when it's a growing republic, let's say a, a senator who fought against uh, Carthage, would he have recognized the Rome of Julius Caesar? I think he would have had a hard time. Would Julius Caesar have recognized the empire of Constantine I? Mm. Yet they would have all regarded themselves as a legitimate continuation of Rome. That's why I think it's also still a legitimate continuation until Constantine XI dies uh, during, this, during the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Rome, as far as I'm concerned. When it comes to studying the subject, when it comes to using the terms, when it comes to novices, for example, like myself, do you view there being a harm in using one word over the other? Or do you think it's pretty much just fair game for people who are underneath a certain level? I mean, as I said, I'm a pretty practical guy. There's just the reality, like how much stuff can you cover in a term, right? If you want to cover Roman history, I mean, I, my first year of ancient history, I had the the course, the course on ancient history, first year, and we went from Homer 
to Justinian. That's right, like what, about 1,400 years of history? It's almost like a century every week. That's overwhelming. Like, do you want to stretch that all the way to 1453? There's just like the problems of pragmatics, right? If you want, I mean, I've been teaching a subject called Byzantine history, and we take, we do take it from, from the crisis of the third century, just to explain people the background. Um, how is it suddenly like possible that we have like imperial residences that become capitals in the East uh, all the way until 1453? have no problem then like um calling it byzantine history i mean it's out of my hands people long before me have created the course named it like that so what i do in my first class is always like look guys let's talk about the term byzantine where does it come from what does it mean what kind of associations have people made with the term and once i've covered that at that point i'm like and from now on i'm just going to call them romans or eastern romans if I have other colleagues uh, teaching the subject, use the term Byzantines, I'm like, it's your show. Um, I'm, I just think like, okay, I've got your attention. Byzantine, I'm going to cast my magic, my magic spell now. I've got your attention. Good. Right. That's the term. And now I'm no longer going to use it. But at least you, know, you guys know, right? So fair game. When we look at the encompassing land holdings of the Eastern Roman Empire, and we look as it shrinks, but it still has a decent amount of land under its control, ranging from Slavic territories to down into Greece, into Anatolia. Would we have seen people calling themselves, especially in the Middle Ages, other ethnic terms such as Turkic or Slavic or so on and so forth? Uh, that's a tricky one. Um I mainly get the perspective from my uh, Eastern sources. And here I, I already use the term Eastern as a modern shorthand. Um, the Roman authors themselves will use all kinds of ethnic labels. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that their uh, neighbors did as well. What, what I do have to stress is there is a wealth, a wealth of literature in local languages in the East. You have people writing in Georgian, in Armenian, in 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 uh, Syriac, like old ancient Syrian, uh, Arabic, but I mean, I'm there's only so much I can do in a single lifetime. I don't know these languages, so this is where I just like put up my hands, admit the limits of my intellectual range. I can work around my Latin and ancient Greek sources. Um, I do not know, of course. And you pointed at yourself out the Slavic neighbors. Um, I mean, I've given you the example of Rum. I mean, that one I know for sure. If I'm not mistaken, um, Arabic sources also referred in similar terms to regions uh, in the West the moment they start conquering them. Um, it's When I'm on my own turf, I feel more familiar. And my own area of expertise is, is the late Roman part or late antique, if you want to call it that. And then we do know that people take pride in, in regional origins. Um, I mean, in the Latin West, for instance, somebody might say that he's a transalpinus. I come from Gaul beyond the Alps. No problem in that. There are layers of ethnicity. There are layers of identity. People had no problem with that. I mean, just as today, you could be, I don't know, a citizen from Washington, D.C., and you could say, like, hey, I'm from Washington. Um, you could say you're... Uh, an American, uh, you could say like, well, I'm from Texas, I'm a Texan. I mean, that's all okay. You can like have these multiple layers. It's, it's the same pretty much, it's pretty much the same thing in the late Roman Empire. And it's of course interesting, how do our authors use it? 
sometimes they can be very subtle in what they mean with 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 uh, ethnicity and names. Like what I really like, the author Ammianus. I'm more familiar with him than some of the later authors. He uses the word Roman every now and then, but he's very subtle in it. Uh, usually, if you do the the checklist, he mainly uses it for people like himself in the army. He's like Roman soldiers, my brothers in arms. And here's where it gets interesting. We know that at this point, you had soldiers coming from way beyond the frontier. People never born in the Roman Empire. And they sign up. And that's no problem for people like Ammianus. If you're a loyal soldier, if you serve the empire, if you devote yourself to the empire, we're all imperial soldiers. We're all Romans, brothers in arms. It's It can be very subtle. And now as we approach the end of this episode... We look at the field of Byzantine studies, Byzantine studies, where it began, where it's come from, how it's evolved. What are your views on how it should change for the future? Should it change? Well, I mean, I know we have major controversies right now about the field of classics. Uh, Should it be renamed and all that? Uh, Which that kind of controversy doesn't play as much in, in, in continental Western Europe. Um, we have a separate field for history and a separate field for philology, which could involve ancient Greek and Latin. Um, in terms of what well, the reality is, the field of Byzantine studies isn't as large as the classical, as the field of ancient history or classics. Uh, to give you a basic example, when I was working in Australia, there are some amazing people working on, on whether you want to call it Byzantine studies or uh, late Roman studies or whatever, Roger Scott, one of the greatest Byzantinists uh, of Australia, once told me he edited, for instance, and translated the Chronicle of uh, Theophanes Confessor, one of our major sources for the Middle Byzantine period. Uh, He once told me, I've never met anyone in in Australia who who was hired as a Byzantinist. I mean, that's how small the field is. There, There were no dedicated jobs for someone as a Byzantinist. You would be hired as, let's say, an ancient Greek scholar a medievalist, an archaeologist. And yet there are all these people from different fields, and it could be even like theology, philosophy, art history, and they can all gather under this umbrella. So in that regard, I'm okay with the umbrella. Um, I'm okay with like having fields as as as, as a, having a field as Byzantine studies. I take no qualms with that, as long as we keep telling our students and people, be aware. This is not what people call themselves today. If you want to use Byzantine to say, like, I'm a modern scholar who studies a particular realm, a particular period in time of which I know it's the Roman Empire in its continuation. Hey, I'm all okay with that. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us here today at the Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. The Good Doctor has walked us through a variety of interesting topics relating to this heavily debated term, and especially online, on is one more accurate than the other? Is it okay to use both? But to remember that if you do use one or the other, or for example, Byzantine over Eastern Roman, remember the honesty behind it and what you are actually referring to. And so without further ado, comment your thoughts in the thread below. And be sure to check out all the links in the video description because it's not only going to take you to the doctor here, but it's going to take you to all of the awesome work he has done, the great work he is doing. Give him your full support and help him do what he does best, and that is teach me and you to help us all understand the subjects that we all love. 
Doctor, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Much obliged.